Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here ends the reading. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son because we desperately long to hear your voice like a child cries for his mother's voice. We cry for your voice. We know that when your word speaks, it's you speaking you speak into whatever context we bring in our individual lives. Give us ears to hear and eyes of faith to see that you are, that you are near. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the, I think, unintended consequences of like, social media platforms, like Facebook especially, is that I can, I can lose track of how long it's been since I've actually caught up with old friends. So the blessing of Facebook is I have quote-unquote kept up with all these friends from high school, or sorry, from college. And, uh, but then all of a sudden I'll call them and I'll realize I haven't talked to you in maybe five years. And I have this kind of illusion of keeping up with you because I see that you had a kid on Facebook, I see that you got a new job, I see that you moved, but I haven't actually talked to you. Um, and so this unintended consequence of, especially I think Facebook is, you know, the way it's designed, it's, it's, it's especially with Facebook, but I have this illusion of keeping up relationships when 
I'm really not. Because we know that relationships is a lot more than having information about someone. It's actually being in a relationship with someone. And so I can know all the stats of Tom Brady does not mean he's my friend. And so similarly, I feel like I have this illusion I'm keeping up with friends on Facebook, but I'm really not. Now, social media can create all kinds of illusions, and a really pernicious illusion that it can create is illusion of compassion. The kind of glut of information we can get on, on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and whatever your social media platform of choice is, we're confronted with all these issues, and we want to respond in some way, and there's built-in ways to respond. Share this. Like this. Comment on this. Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with any of this. Like, if there's something we deeply believe in, sometimes it's okay. To, like, sometimes it's helpful to share on Facebook. Many times it's not, but sometimes it is. But here's the thing is we can, we can walk away thinking, well, I, I feel compassion because I see this thing going on. I want to do something, and so I've, I've shared it. I've done my thing. I'm good. And there's this illusion of having demonstrated compassion because we feel something and then we do something. But we're going to find it from our text this morning is that the compassion that Jesus calls us to is nothing like the pseudo-compassion of social media. We're in this kind of mini four-part series within the Gospel of Luke, which is looking at the characteristics of authentic discipleship. And last week, we looked at the first characteristic. It's a, it's a costly and committed discipleship. And then today, we're going to look at the second characteristic of authentic discipleship, which is that authentic discipleship is a discipleship that is marked by active and practical compassion, a true love of our neighbor. And to give you a roadmap of where we're going this morning, in our, in our story this morning, Jesus receives two questions that for various reasons are, are bad questions, so a false question, a wrong question, and then Jesus responds with the right question, the question that we should be asking. And these all have to do with who is my neighbor? What does it mean to have compassion? What does it mean to love my neighbor? And ultimately, what does it mean to love God? So let's go ahead and turn your Bible, if you haven't yet, and look at verses 25 to 28 with me. Again, that's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, Jesus mentions a lawyer. When you think lawyer, don't think of kind of, you know, modern-day courtroom justice. This is Luke's word for a scribe. And a scribe would have been a man who dedicated his life to studying, interpreting, and passing along specifically the law of Moses, what we find in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Have been kind of a biblical scholar, even more so than like a pastor, not a shepherding function. Who have been, who would have devoted his life to studying the law. Now, Jesus oftentimes did not like the scribes, and one of the reasons was that, at this point, anyways, scribes oftentimes would spend more time on the oral tradition that was kind of building up around the law, which sometimes even directly contradicted the law. They would they would spend more emphasis or more t- attention to that than to God's word itself. So Jesus oftentimes would get in the crosshairs of the scribes. But that's who this is. This is a scribe. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, an expert in the law. And he comes with an, a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
That, there is no more important question than that. That's it. All other questions are secondary. And when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not just talking about what do I need to do to go to heaven. That's typically, oftentimes, you know, we think of salvation. We might think, okay, what do I need to do to get into heaven? I don't want to go to hell. It's broader than just what do I need to do to get into heaven? Eternal life in the scriptures encapsulates things like Romans 5.5, God's love being poured out into our hearts. How do I experience the love of God that is poured out into the hearts of his people? Or Philippians 4, seven, the peace of God that transcends understanding. Or 1 Peter 1.8, a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Finally, John chapter 17, it's fellowship with God the Father and his Son. Eternal life most basically, is life with God under his rule in this life and the life to come. And if there is a God, then there is no more significant question we can ask him, what does it mean to have life with him under his rule now and forever? Good question. But we're alerted to a fact this is not asked in the most straightforward motives. There's a deceptive motive behind this. He's asking us to test Jesus. The scribe, is, is, he's trying to embarrass Jesus, to discredit him in front of his followers. It's kind of like we think of a cross-examiner in a court of law. When a cross-examiner is asking a witness a question, it's not a, you know, oh, I'm just curious, what do you think about this? They're trying to get the witness to contradict themselves, to show that, well, they, you know, they, might, they couldn't have possibly been where they said they were. They're trying to discredit the witness's testimony. That's what the scribe is doing here. So he's asking a good question, but it's a false question. It's not an honest question. He doesn't really want to know. He's trying to embarrass Jesus. And so Jesus' response takes us into account. Rather than giving a straightforward response, Jesus is brilliant. You know, we, we worship him because he's the son of God. But man, he is quick on his feet. And the way that he's able to interact with questions like this is just, it's phenomenal. So first what he does is he parries the question by putting it back on the scribe. He says, okay, well, what do you think? If ever you want to avoid like an argument, that's a great way to parry the, you know, the, the, the you know, what do you think? And then the way he asks it too is really important. He says, what does the law say? One of the big criticisms of Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus is they're like, look, you're like contradicting the Bible. You're working against God's word, his traditions. Like you're trying to overthrow the traditions of the elders. And so Jesus is saying, look, you have the Bible. I believe the Bible. I'm not trying to overthrow the Old Testament. You tell me what it says. This brilliant response. Brilliant response. He says, the scribe, what do you think? And the scribe answers in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He responds with what's called the Great Commandment, which is a combination of two verses in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Just put them together. But it is a, a true and profound summary of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament, even if, when you even think of the law, the, 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 the actual law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, there's a lot of words in there. But he summarizes in just two sentences, and it is brilliant and it is true. All of the law can be summed up in loving God with every part of our being and then loving other people not one tiny bit less than we love and are concerned about ourselves. You look at the Ten Commandments. That's the Ten Commandments. We're the first four commandments. Love God with everything. You should have no other idols. You should not misuse God's name. Remember the Sabbath. That's all about loving God. What are the next six? 
shall honor your parents, you shall not commit murder, adultery, you shall not misuse God's uh, I got them in there, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not lie. Not in the right order, but you got the idea. Six commandments about loving our neighbor. It's a true summary. It's a profound summary of the Old Testament in two sentences. And look at Jesus' response in verse 28. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. What's the problem there? Jesus says, yeah, you got it. Love God perfectly with everything. And then love your neighbor perfectly. Never putting yourself first. Do that perfectly, and you'll have eternal life. That's just not. The standard is beyond any person. It's impossible. That's the problem. Now, here's the thing. There are two possible responses that the scribe could have had in response to coming up to the law. The first response is to try to rationalize or minimize or qualify the law in some way to make it manageable. Dumb it down, blunt the impact to something that I can do. I can manage it on my own. That's one response. The other response is to fall on his knees before God and cry out for mercy. One of the brilliant insights that came out of the Protestant Reformation is that one significant function of the law is that it was intended to demonstrate God's holiness in contrast to our, depra- our sin. So that when we come up against the, the commands of God, which are good and true and beautiful, and realize that's so far beyond what I can do, we cry out for mercy. And God meets us there in the place of mercy. That's one of the functions of the law. That's why the New City Catechism, which is really just, you know, it's just copying much, much older Protestant catechisms, says in question 11, since no one can keep the law, it's a standard beyond anyone, what is its purpose? The answer is that we may know the holy nature of God, will of God, and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. We always face those two options when we come up to the law of God. We're either going to try to minimize it. No, it can't mean that. No, it's got to be easier than that. No, I think I can handle this. Or we fall on our knees and we cry out for mercy because we know we don't deserve it. And God meets us there. Now, if the, if the scribe had responded in that kind of a way, God have mercy on me, I am a sinner, then Jesus would have responded probably something along the lines of, well, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. But that's not how the scribe responds. Look how the scribe responds in verses 29 through 35. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. So we've seen first a, a false question, a question that's a, a good question to ask, but coming from wrong motives. And then here we see a wrong question, the wrong question to ask. 
And once again, we see false motives. Here is a Pharisee desiring to justify himself. The idea of that is he's trying to kind of assuage his conscience, trying to confirm that, okay, so far I've been doing the right thing. I want to make sure I'm on the, you know, I want to kind of make sure I'm doing the right thing here. Cover my, cover my, whatever the word is, you know what I'm saying. In response, Jesus gives this parable. Now, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles. It was incredibly isolated. It went through deserts. It went through mountains. There was caves in the mountains. Because of the isolation of the route, because of the topography, it was just, it was the perfect place for an ambush. And so it was known for being a dangerous route. Many bandits who would hang out there. And so this, telling the story would have been like, oh yeah, okay, this kind of thing happens. And what happens, this man is, is ambushed, and the idea is he's, he's half dead. He's probably unconscious, lying in a pool of his own blood on the side of the road. When you're 17 miles in the middle of nowhere, that's not a good place to be. It's a pretty pessimistic picture. But then lo and behold, a person's coming. What are the chances that someone could come before this man dies? Unlikely. Even better, it's a priest, a man of God. And the idea is that he's coming from the temple. He's just fulfilled his temple duties, worshiping the true God like this is who you want to come along a road when you are in this kind of a place. But the priest passed by and ignores him. Well, then comes a Levite. A Levite would have been like a priest's assistant. It was someone from the tribe of Levi, but did not descend from Aaron himself. So they did other duties in the temple. Again, coming from his temple duties, but he also passes by. And then a the third person comes. Now we want to pause here because we've probably heard the story many times. We know it's a Samaritan but the first hearers, based on how Jesus is setting this up, probably would have been expecting a clergy-non-clergy contrast. Jesus is, is, is kind of picking on the priest and the Levite, and then here comes just an ordinary Jew. That's what they were expecting. That's probably what they're expecting. But instead, Jesus says, no, a Samaritan comes along. And that's shocking. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were the descendants of foreigners who repopulated northern Israel after they were decimated by the Syrian Empire. So the Syrian Empire comes in, destroys the northern kingdom, takes most of the people, scatters them throughout the Assyrian Empire, and then repopulates the land with people from around the empire. It describes this in 2 Kings 17. It says the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthoth, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, so in the cities of Israel, instead of the people of Israel. But every nation, this is talking about the people that repopulated Israel, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places. And to this day, they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob. These are people who do not worship God. And over time, there's a syncretistic kind of religion that was formed out of it where they kind of worshipped Lord the Yahweh, but they also worshipped all their foreign gods. And so the Israelites, the true Jews, viewed them as apostates. And in fact, in Nehemiah, what we find out is that the Samaritans militantly and violently opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So this is a centuries-long, deep-seated ethnic hatred that probably most of us have, really have no experiential understanding of. We don't, we, you know, our, our, our animosities go back like a year. This is centuries. The Jews hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate the Jews. If you remember in chapter 9, Jesus is trying to go through a Samaritan village, and they say, no, 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 if you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want, we don't want anything to do with you goes both ways. 
Jesus picks a Samaritan. So this should be shocked by, by what he chooses here. And the Samaritan does two things that the priest and the Levite don't do. Look at verse 33. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan has compassion. The priest and the Levite says that they come and, and they go to the other side of the road. The idea is, you know, this half-dead guy is an inconvenience. I'm going to Jericho. He's in my way. I don't have time for this. Maybe there's a fear of danger. I don't want to get jumped by the guys who jumped this guy. But there's no sense of compassion. They just, he's someone to get around to keep going on their day. The Samaritan comes and he has compassion. But the second thing, and this is the important thing for our story this morning, is that the Samaritan has an active compassion. In verses 34 to 35, that describes what he does for this man. Samaritan engages in six steps. He stops, he pours oil and wine on the man's wounds, which would have been a disinfectant and a way to kind of soothe his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, he takes him to an inn. He pays enough money for this man to stay there for 24 days. That's how much money it costs to put someone in a hotel for 24 days. Like, this is a sacrificial commitment. Jesus is intentional about including these specific actions. Even just doing a simple word count lets us know what the point of this story is. In, in, in verses 30 to 33, where it tells the story of this man getting jumped and the priest and the Levite, you got 56 words. And just describing what the Samaritan does, the specific concrete acts of compassion, are 50 words. Half the words in the story are just describing these seemingly unnecessarily to describe actions. Jesus is saying, is the is, is Samaritans just stop and I feel bad? He does things. His compassion is active. It's the point of the story. And this parable demonstrates two theological truths for us. That first theological truth, which I've just been saying, is that true compassion leads to specific and concrete actions. Compassion is not primarily an emotion. Or at least that's, that's necessary but not sufficient. It's something that leads to concrete and specific actions. So sharing stuff on Facebook, there's nothing wrong with that. Again, sometimes there is. But, you know, usually there's not. But if that's all we do, that's not compassion. It's just the illusion of compassion. Compassion requires specific and concrete actions. But the second theological truth, and this one's going to get a little bit more abstract, so just hang with me, is that our compassion is most like God's compassion when it reaches out to those who are different from us. Our compassion is most like God's compassion when it reaches out to those who are different from us. When we look out in the world, there's all kinds of, of divisions. You can think of racism, ethnic hatred, cliques, I don't, whatever. There's, humans are divided from humans. Why? It's a lack of education, lack of opportunity, lack of exposure to people different from us. Like, these all may be factors, but as Christians, we say, no, the fundamental reason things like ethnic hatred and racism exist is because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just break the relationship between man and God. It broke the relationship between man and man. And from that point on, there was ethnic hatred. That's the root of all this stuff. And these divisions can manifest in a variety of ways, right? There's the obvious, just outright racism. I don't like you because of the color of your skin or where you're from or your accent. But there's far more subtle examples of just social cliques. I have my friend group. 
We're not that interested in having other people in it. Um, it can be just a fear of people who are, you know, not from around here. I grew up in a rural town in Pennsylvania. If you were not from that town, you were, didn't matter how long you stayed there, you were always a stranger. It can manifest in all kinds of ways, these divisions between people. But here's the thing. God's compassion bridged the greatest divide that ever existed. The divide between me and the most different human on the planet is nothing compared to the divide between God and humanity. That's an infinite divide. That is an infinite separation. But God, when he became man, bridged that divide out of his compassion for people. He did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who is God and man. In our, in our cultural moment, there's just crazy things happening. We can have hope because God and Jesus Christ bridged the greatest divide that exists. And so in Jesus Christ, there's hope for di- bridging any division, healing any animosity that might exist between people. That's why Ephesians 2 says that in Jesus, in his flesh, in his death, he put an, he put an end to the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. I think too often we forget. Here's the thing. It's one thing to say we, we haven't lived this out very well. I mean, you know, go to a church in the South in the 1920s where if you were black, you literally weren't allowed to be a member. Like, we haven't lived this out. That does not mean that the gospel is not the answer. It doesn't mean that Christ can bring reconciliation and all the other things that people try to look at. Well, that'll heal it. That'll heal it. That'll heal it. Sure, that may be fine. That may be helpful. But there's one thing that can heal it, and that is Christ himself. And he does that. We have such an amazing truth to offer to the world. It's just, it's easy to forget that. We tone it down. No, no, no. Christ in his flesh has brought down the wall of hostility. Praise God. In Christ Jesus, I can love my Samaritan brother, whom I hated before, my Samaritan brother can love me, etc., etc. So we've had a false question. It was a true question, but set out of wrong motives. We have a wrong question. Who is my neighbor? Which is not only set out of false motives, but it's the wrong question to ask. Jesus finally responds with, what is the right question to ask? Verses 36 to 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So interesting. Again, Jesus doesn't, ask, doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? The scribe comes. He's looking for a way to rationalize the law, make it something he can do on his own, manage it, make it something manageable, or maybe just get lost in this theological debate. Like, let's just, let's just argue how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And Jesus just turns the tables on him. He goes for his heart. He says, look, you're, answering, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? Right? Like, is, if, if he lives 50 miles away from me, does he count as a neighbor? Uh, no, that's not the question. The question is, are you actually being a neighbor to the people that God has placed in your life? Are you actually showing compassion that God is, to those that God has placed in your life? The priest on the way to Drew, Jericho could have easily rationalized, well, I don't know him. He doesn't, he's not my real neighbor. You know, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, no, are you actually being a neighbor? Start there. That's the question to start with. 
Are we showing compassion to those that God has placed in our life? Active and practical compassion. Now here's an objection slash question that I think is very honest and real, which, to put it humorously, where are all the people lying half dead on a highway? Right? Like, we probably look out our doors and think, everyone seems to be doing okay. Who do I show compassion to? It's really easy when you wake up in the morning and there's someone lying on your doorstep half dead. Like, like, compassion is the obvious response there. We know what we need to do. That's easy. But how about the day-to-day, regular life? Who, who do I show compassion? Like, who, how do I even know? So I have two considerations. So I think it's a very honest uh, question. And the first consideration is that compassion, true compassion, requires a deep sensitivity to the lives and needs of others. Because again, occasionally it's really, really obvious. Most of the time it's not. And so we have to develop this deep sensitivity to what's going on in the people around us. And oftentimes the acts of compassion will be very simple, but very meaningful. Let me give you an example. On Valentine's Day, I um, bought a nice bouquet of flowers from Mariko um, and, uh, you know, picked them out, yada, yada, yada. And we have a neighbor, uh, we've just moved into her house, we don't know her very well. She's in her 50s and she's single. I don't know her background, I don't know why she's single. But Valentine's Day, you know, when you're single is tough, and when you're older and single, I imagine it's, it's very tough. And so Mariko took some of the flowers of the bouquet that I bought for her, made a small bouquet, and then took Caleb, her son, over and gave her these flowers and made a little card. Really simple. Beautiful gesture. I'm sure it brightened her day. It wasn't even on my radar. I mean, like, right, this is evidence I married out of my league. It wasn't even, I, I was just like, that is a brilliant idea. Did not occur to me that Valentine's Day we could show compassion to a woman who lives next door who's unmarried. That's what it looks like. It's developing that sensitivity of thinking about those that God has placed in our context and seeing those simple but very meaningful ways that we can show active and practical compassion. The second consideration is that this developing this sensitivity to others, to the the lives and and needs of those around us, is going to require neighboring, not just being a neighbor. It's going to require neighboring, not just being a neighbor. If you notice, I'm, I'm, I'm turning neighbor into a verb. Typically, it's a noun. It's something we are. I'm making it a verb, something we do. Because the importance of being a neighbor is not the fact that I live in a house next to you, but it's that I am living in relationship with you. That's neighboring. I can be a neighbor and never neighbor as a verb. That makes sense. And that is nothing. Because here's the thing. Unless I'm actually involved in the lives of those around me, I'm not even going to know how to be sensitive to their needs and concerns. And I think as Christians, we have to, we have, especially, especially you can consider the isolated lives that we live, if we're not intentional about neighboring, like we're just, we're never going to build relationships with those around us. And we're never going to be in a place where we can live out this call to active and practical compassion. I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like again. And again, I'm not going to use myself because I'm just really bad at this. This is me under conviction. Like, Lord, I want to follow you. Help me do this better. I had a friend um, back at Sojourn who was better at neighboring than anyone I've ever seen. He, he, he moved into a house with his family. They'd lived there a year and a half. They threw a Christmas party. I went, and they invited their street. And like half their street came. 
It may not sound impressive, but if you've ever tried to do that, it's hard to get people to come into your home. And the only way they'll do that is if they've already had a relationship with you. And here was the cool thing. They were all so different than my friend. They were different ages. They were different, like, backgrounds, different education, different socioeconomic. Like, they were all so different. And they all came into his home because he had been neighboring. He had built these relationships that they trusted him. And I tell you what, the opportunities he had to show compassion were astounding because people would just tell him stuff. And he could love them and point them to Christ. It was incredible and beautiful. And I asked him, how, like, after the Christmas party, okay, side story. Mark and I, when we first got married, we moved into an apartment complex. And, like, we were idealistic. Like, we're going to love our neighbors so well. And so we invited eight different apartments to come have ice cream and brownies with us. We were so excited. The night came. We didn't have a single person come. Like, not one. And so I talked to my friend after this Christmas party. And I'm like, how did you do this? And this is what he said. He said he made a commitment that every time his neighbors were outside, he would be outside. So his neighbors mowing the lawn. He would go get his lawnmower and start mowing the lawn and find a way to strike up a conversation. His neighbor was raking the leaves. He'd go rake his leaves. I'm telling you, he was not an extroverted person. This is not an introvert, extrovert thing. He was just an intentional commitment. Anytime my neighbor's outside, I'm going to be out there. And over a year, two years, three years, four years, the relationship I'm going to start building with people is going to give me opportunities to show this compassion and ultimately to tell people about Jesus. And we give you a warning, though. If, you, if we get serious about this idea of neighboring as a commitment, it will always come at the least convenient time. Always. It'll be that Saturday morning, 45-minute window you have to go running. You're going to step outside, and there's your neighbor with his kids. And you're like, of course. This is when my neighbors are free, when I want to go for a run. And that's why it's got to be a commitment. It can't just be a, well, that'd be nice. It has to be a commitment. This is what Jesus has called us to, to show compassion. Now, here's the thing. Nowhere in this story does it say you must always be outside whenever your neighbor's outside. It doesn't say that. But this is an, one of the characteristics of what it means to follow Jesus. And we can't do this if we don't know our neighbors. If we, if we make a commitment to neighboring well, man, I think Jesus will bless that. What is the right question to ask? Not who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor? Am I loving those that God and his sovereignty has put in my life? Am I showing them active and practical compassion? That's the second characteristic of authentic discipleship, active and practical compassion. Now, in, in our men's discipleship, we're going through James, and, and we're going to be going over the, the part where it talks about the difference between those who hear the word and forget and those who hear the word and do it. And that's just always a temptation for us. And I want us to be a people who hear the word. I want to be a pastor and a Christian and a brother who hears the word and does it. I don't want to hear the word and forget it. So this, I want everyone to close your eyes. This is how we're going to finish this morning. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture in your mind your neighbors. You may not even know their names, but you probably know their faces. I want you to picture that in your mind. Church, those are your neighbors whom God has called you to show active and practical compassion to.
Let's pray. Jesus, we want to follow you, for you are glorious, for you have saved us from our sins, for you are the true king. You are God, and there is no other God. There is no other hope for salvation outside of you. And you have bridged the greatest divide that ever existed, the divide between us and you. And we want to image that compassion in how we love those that you have placed in our lives. May we be a people who do crazy things, like going out and mowing my lawn for the simple and sole reason that I want to talk to my neighbor because you left your home and came to us. May we do that, for you are good and kind. In your name I pray, amen.